Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey guys, I wanted to tell you about our new sponsor, Crypto.com. Crypto.com's exchange is a rapidly growing trading venue with a strong retail flow. Top institutions can receive a credit line and highly competitive maker-taker fees. Their platform is robust, secure, and compliant. You can get started trading today on the Crypto.com exchange. And to get in touch with their institutional sales team, visit bit.ly slash CryptoDelphi now or click the link in the show notes. Now back to our show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm joined by my partner, Jan Lieberman. And today we have on Chad, who's the technical lead at ThorChain. Full disclosure, Delphi Ventures uh, holds ThorChain as an investment. And we also previously covered it for our institutional members last summer. Chad, how's it going? Yeah, it's going really good. I'm a longtime listener of the podcast, so I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, thrilled to have you on. And Jan, how are you doing? Fantastic. No, I'm excited to be part of this. Same here. So, Chad, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in crypto. Yeah, I actually got started in 2017. I uh, kind of made this life choice, and I just decided to sell everything I have and start traveling the world nonstop. And my very first time traveling outside the country, and I met these guys in Croatia that were like these big Ethereum bulls, you know, and it kind of explained to me crypto and all this stuff. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is the most incredible thing I've ever heard. So I started reading everything I could find. Uh, and as a technical person, I was like, you know what, I was going to roll my own blockchain from scratch, just to, as an academic sandbox of sorts to understand the the how it works, uh, blockchain works like underneath the hood in a matter of speaking. And ever since then, I just like, you know, I need to just devote my life to this. So I quit my job and I just like, I'm going to start building projects and work on things and reading all I can read and, and building whatever I can build to help this, this like, uh, this industry mature and get it further along and, and, and have more people get involved with this, with this kind of stuff. That's awesome. So how did you guys come up originally with the idea for ThorChain. And I guess before that, maybe it'd be worth just giving the 30-second overview on, on what ThorChain is. We, we'll go into depth a lot more later on. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the very simplest way I can put uh, describe ThorChain is it's just like Uniswap in the sense that you can swap from one asset to another asset. But one of the very big differences, or one of the many very big differences, is that this one is, a, is designed from the ground up to be cross-chain, right? You can swap in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, Bitcoin Cash, whatever. It's all the same. Uh, uniquely, so uh, ThorChain is agnostic about what what chains it connects to, what assets that are allowed in the network. It's purely uh, described by the community to say we want this chain, we want this asset. Uh, we have no preference. We have no. Uh, we don't pick horses and winners and losers. The, the network is completely agnostic in that sense. So it'll allow you to swap in a decentralized way without needing to dox yourself. No KYC required to swap from Bitcoin to Ethereum, to Ethereum to Tether, Tether to uh, you know any other thing you can think about there. That makes sense. And Jan, when you and Medio were diving into ThirdChain originally, did you view it as kind of a cross-chain Uniswap or did you kind of view it more as obviously very different? 
I think you know you take elements from Uniswap, and and so in in layman's terms, it is cross chain Uniswap. But I think part of what really got us interested was also the the way that the token was integrated. And um, I think at the time it was especially novel. And um, over time, users have gotten or developers and and people in the space have gotten more creative with token integrations. And so you're starting to see some elements kind of get borrowed from there. You know, whether it's um, just thinking about like uh, pool two and all of these um, yield farms and, and just ways to kind of create immediate demand for the token and reward that demand. And so I thought that the the crossing Uniswap was was a huge value add. And then on top of that, the token integration itself was was really appealing to us. That's awesome. So Chad, when you guys are all said and done with this, and I want to get into the specifics, but I want to make sure we contextualize it first. Basically, what you're saying is that people can go online just like they do with Uniswap today and trade assets cross-chain fully in a trustless way. Yeah, that's that's the vision. Uh, we're currently, uh, we've launched CastNet just a couple weeks ago. Uh, that CastNet is kind of a live proof of concept to some degree. It, that one is not cross-chain. It just, just works for Binance Chain specifically. Uh, that's just to prove the economics work, uh, prove that this is all. This none of this is vaporware. It actually, really operates, really trade funds. But we'll be launching a multi-chain KSNet uh, later this year. Therefore, we'll have Bitcoin and Ethereum integration. That's awesome. And why do you think that this hasn't been done before? Like, you know, why is Hayden at Uniswap? It's probably a kind of a naive question, but why is it taking so long to actually nail cross-chain value exchange? Yeah, I mean, it's been something that people have been talking about for years, right? People have talked about atomic swaps years ago and all this kind of concept, and they never kind of took flight for their own reasons. But uh, part of the problem is, like, how do you secure the assets, right, in a decentralized way? Because most time, when if you have a, an ex- a regular exchange, a centralized exchange, like, you know, Binance or, 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 or Coinbase or what have you, uh, they they have their own wallets that they maintain internally, right? Which is obviously highly centralized. So how do you get the centralized people to get them together to secure tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars worth of assets? Uh, and the major kind of breakthrough I think was what came out uh, that allowed Torchain to exist was something called threshold signatures. And threshold signatures is conceptually very similar to like a multi-sig, right? Uh, in a multi-sig scenario, we have you know four different private keys, and you require three of those four to, to sign some transaction to move funds outside of the wallet to some other location. But the difference between multi-sig and, and threshold signatures is that the threshold signature will actually do all multiple people to sign a single, a single signature. So if you look at the Bitcoin block itself and you say, oh, this is a multi-sig transaction, you will see four different signatures or three different signatures or 10 different signatures within Bitcoin's block itself. But on a threshold signature, it's actually only one signature, but that one signature is designed and, and put together by a multitude of individuals. And so that was like the major kind of breakthrough that didn't even exist like a year ago uh, until uh, it was kind of created by a dev team, a uh, research team rather, to, to make that possible. That's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. And you guys have been building for quite some time, despite that only being available last year, you said? Yeah, it's relatively new. Uh, we've been working on this project for as a as a project as a whole has been around for about two years or so. You can go with the multi sig ang- angle if you really wanted to do that. There's problems that come up with that. Uh, how do you distribute keys, for example? And only some chains will support multi sig, right? Bitcoin supports it, but not that chain. Some chains will support it, so will, will support more than others. Like Bitcoin, for example, only supports tw- up to twenty multi sig. Uh, 20 key signature uh, keys within a single multi-sig. So that means you can't have more than 20 
uh, operators within a network. And that's a, a pretty strong limitation, right? We want to be able to have 30, 40, 50, 100, 200, right? With the uh, threshold signatures, you can have effectively as many as you want, uh, depending upon how you want to structure that system. There's a, a drawback that comes from that. The more nodes you have involved, the more, more keys you have uh, associated with the, uh, the threshold signature, the more time it takes to sign something. So there's a, a pro and con, uh, a give and take to, to that system. But we want to make sure that 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 this chain or a Thor chain can integrate with any chain, whether or not they support multi-sig or not. Our requirements to integrate with any particular chain is basically, can I create my own keys without going through some sort of KYC process, which is pretty much almost every chain today that I can think of top of my head. That's the only requirement that we have as, as, as an operation. If we wanted to do with multi-sig, it would have been a lot more complicated in some ways. There were some, some security issues to be concerned of, and we would only limit to chains support multi-sig, which could be problematic. That's totally fair. And just to, for the other dumb question here, but how hard is it for people today? And I mean, we know this, but for those who might not know, how hard is it to actually move value from one chain to another today? Do you have to use centralized exchange? Are there any actual trustless options out there? Because I know when we start to dig into competitors, we always generally find, you know, most of the time we find some link or some centralized control or some point of failure. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a very difficult thing to do for sure. Like how do you, how do you ensure that the, 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 the data connection between these two chains is valid, that it's not being manipulated, that's not being controlled by some sort of centralized party, right? That's a very difficult, difficult question. I think for us, we have, you know, we have something called Bifrost, which is one of the components of the stack of ThorChain. And Bifrost's job is to basically observe and sign transactions on remote chains. So on Bitcoin, on Ethereum, on Binance Chain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even that code by itself is probably around, I think, like 20,000 lines of code, right? Uh, versus something like a compound finance, right, which is arguably one of the most successful, you know, smart contract out there. The entire code base, I think, if I remember correctly, is like two thousand lines of code, right? And so it's, it is very complex to connect to remote chains and to have uh, to deal with the complexities of those chains. On Bitcoin, for example, you can have uh, like reorgs that can just confuse the heck out of things. I don't even think the most centralized chains even deal with reorgs, right, uh, to a certain degree. Like they just kind of take the losses and take it on the chin in a matter of speaking, because to deal with, with the, the intricacies and the complexities of each individual chain is by itself a difficult thing to do and takes a, quite a long time to, get, to wrap your head around how it works and what, the, what those uh, drawbacks are and how to actually uh, deal with those if it, something does happen. Got it. And is it, a, oh, sorry, I'll go for it. No, go ahead. Go for it. Chad, is it a fair comparison, though, to compare something like Compound or Uniswap to ThorChain? I feel like while those are both amazing projects, they're built on Ethereum where you guys are more so building like a very complex piece of infrastructure and people could build user interfaces to interact with ThorChain without even knowing, right? So like, I don't know if yeah. BlockFi plugs in or something like that, but it's definitely more complex. Oh, I mean, it's, yeah, overall... It is, it is, yeah, it is a lot more complex, right? And that's why we purposely are moving uh, intentionally slowly in terms of how we are growing chaos at now. We're not like just letting people just, you know, stake a billion dollars overnight. That would just be careless and 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 and, and just not the smart move to make. But yeah, it, it is a lot more complicated to do it uh, the way we're doing it uh, now. But that's actually, but it's, it's the correct way to do it. Like it, it makes no sense to me personally 
that people would build DeFi applications on Ethereum. I get the short-term sense of like, oh, I can just write some code in a smart contract. You know, the average smart contract is 150 lines of code. I can just, you know, deploy it easily and then, you know, in a weekend, deploy a DeFi application. I get how the simplicity, the convenience of it. Okay, I understand that. But you're you're building a DeFi application that is that is, you know, tied to a specific chain. That's not really that much of the D of the DeFi, right? It's like DeFi for one particular thing, which is not quite actually DeFi. It's almost like if you were to say, like, hey, I'm gonna build some a road. But I'm only going to allow uh, a Buicks to drive down, right? It's it's kind of a ludicrous concept, right? And, and if, you know, if you want to drive your BMW down this road, you have to buy this Buick skateboard and put your card on it through like a pegged asset, which is what you see, uh, you know, REM BDC is doing and TBDC is doing this kind of pegged concept. It, it makes no actual logical sense. It only makes sense in the current environment as it looks and appears right now. But if you go back to first principles and think of like what actually makes sense in the space is DeFi should be actually the D of the Fi, right? It should be, it should be, should be decentralized. It should be able to operate and integrate with any chain, any asset, any anything you can think of. And that's why when, like, when, when you see ThorChain actually be able to connect with like chains like Bitcoin, for example, which is like nobody's doing that at all in terms of being able to stake uh, assets onto a chain, you're going to see a, a success rate like you can't even think of. Because you, you have to remember that Bitcoin has got like, what, $250 billion of, of, of market cap right now. And, and Bitcoin's at like, I think like 20 billion or something like this. No, I'm sorry, Ethereum's like 20 billion or, or 25 billion, something like this. So you, uh, you will build a DeFi application that can integrate with any chain and all of a sudden, liquidity will be immense. And, and so any app, anybody who wants to build a competitor to compound finance, for example, build it you know, in a decentralized way, meaning that you can connect with any chain, including Bitcoin. It'll be so much more successful and so much more money be staked. And so much, you can't even fathom how, how different that would be. It makes no sense to build DeFi on Ethereum. I just don't understand it in the long term. It makes sense in the short term and how the market looks now, but look more than 10 feet in front of your face and you'll just see that it makes no sense to build it specifically for Ethereum only. So on that note, um, I was wondering if you can kind of expand on the process of adding new chains and kind of does it become incrementally more or less complex with each incremental chain or you know, just kind of thoughts around that? Yeah, so it depends on some like previous de- development, right? So if we integrate Bitcoin, for example, adding Bitcoin Cash or Litecoin, which are both forks of Bitcoin, is relatively easy, right? Because the code will be pretty much the same, right? But if we want to add something like Solana, which is a very different chain in terms of how it's designed, that takes more time, right? But to be clear, it's not like us doing it, right? As in us being the, the, the core team, right? It is up to the community to decide what chains get added to the network and what assets get added to the network. We have no ability within the team itself, the core team itself, to decide who gets on, who doesn't, and we just don't have that, right? Anybody in the world can develop a little module for Bifrost to be able to, to monitor Bitcoin or some other chain out there. How much time it takes and how com- complex it is, we're trying to make that as simple as we can so that if you want to add a module for Tron, let's just say, that, will, that you just integrate with Bifrost using a few hundred lines of code, hopefully, depending upon how complex that chain is. But it should be, we're trying to make it as, as easy as we can so the community can contribute and they can build, oh, we want to add Ethereum Classic or whatever other chain out there uh, with as little time to do so. 
No, appreciate that. And I guess in, in terms of how that differentiates versus some of the other uh, competitors like REN and TBTC, in terms of how they provide cross-chain capabilities, can you expand on and kind of how uh, ThorChain does it differently? Yeah. Um, well, so some chains are, are doing it in different ways. Uh, like Kava, for example, is doing it a slightly different way than, than, than ThorChain. They're using atomic swaps, for example, I think, on Binance, if I'm not mistaken. But RenBDC is, is more closely aligned with, with ThorChain in terms of their style of doing it. They're also using threshold signatures, for example. Uh, I'm not intimately understanding the details of how they implement their, their chain in terms of how they integrate with other chains. Uh, my assumption is the same. They have to monitor Bitcoin for particular transactions to particular addresses and then make the observation and then report it into, into their own system, into, into their Ethereum system. So Chad, just to follow up on Jan's question as well, to contextualize this a bit, like we're seeing projects in DeFi attract, you know, hundreds of millions or potentially billions of total value locked overnight, but there's always been a slight disconnect between total value locked and the actual token value accrual. Can you kind of go into, and um, I'm sure Jan will have you know more in-depth comments here, but can you kind of go into why, if you guys were to attract liquidity or token, would actually accrue value versus some of the DeFi plays we're seeing today? Yeah, so Rune is the token of the ThorChain network, uh, and its value is, is, is uh, not a speculative asset, right? Bitcoin is a speculative asset, Ethereum is a speculative asset. You can speculate on what the prices of these things but rune is different Rune is actually designed to be different uh rune is its, its primary purpose is to secure this network right and so effectively what happens is its price is relative to the staked non-rune assets on the network so the more bnb that gets staked the more bitcoin that gets staked the more ethereum that gets staked on the this, this network the price of rune naturally and inherently so has to increase with it typically it's 3x whatever the staked non-rune assets of the network are it can be more 4x 5x 6x depending upon how much rune is just sitting in people's wallets and not contributing to the network and how much rune is being in the network meaning that it's either bond or uh, uh stake through the network itself yeah and and that's uh, you know part of the part of what really drew us in is that that novel design and um another reason why we thought it was a bit ahead of its time is, is i think it really provides for some uh, element of, of fork defensibility as well. And kind of where you're seeing uh, with current protocols that don't necessarily have a token integrated or it's not integrated to the same extent, you you become a bit more susceptible to vampire attacks. Um, so I was wondering if you can kind of expand on on uh, how you potentially see, I guess, Thorchain being a bit more fork defensible here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so if you want to take Uniswap, and then uh, clone that and create something slightly different, like a sushi swap, for example. Relatively speaking to ThorChain, it's relatively easy. Because all you need to take is this smart contract, make a few edits to it, and deploy it. It's really not that, uh, relatively speaking, I mean, it, it's, it's really not that difficult. But ThorChain is different. It's got its own nodes. It's got its own network. It has its own uh, token, which currently is a, a BEP2 asset on uh, Binance, which we have plans to move that to be a native asset on ThorChain itself. You have to create an entire new network and not just deploy a smart contract. Uh, that's a lot more difficult to to kind of vampire attack and siphon those funds when it takes so much more effort and time. Not to mention that understanding the code base of ThorChain is a lot more complicated because it's well over 100,000 lines of code. So to have somebody to take the time to understand that would take considerably more time than you know a couple thousand lines of a smart contract. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And um, I guess to kind of go into the fork defensibility a bit further as well, I think um, there's defensibility on the technical side, but there's also some on the economic side. And and so specifically, you know, the way that, that Rune is integrated, where you have the nodes operating uh, that have to hold Rune, and at the same time, it's it's half of every pool. I think that that aspect helps as well. And so, you know, we'd love to kind of dive into the economic side of, of uh, Thorchain. And, and I guess we can start with the incentive pendulum and kind of how that operates and, and the goal there. Yeah, uh, just to touch on one thing that you just kind of mentioned right there is that sure. one of the things that makes uh, Thorchain different than, you know, something like Uniswap is that each pool, uh, like Bitcoin pool, BNB pool, Ethereum pool, they always have two assets, which is going to be Rune and Bitcoin or Rune and Ethereum. So the liquidity is all put into a single pool rather than being sparse across multiple pools uh, that you would see on Uniswap. Uh, and that's a, that's a significant difference because it makes sure that liquidity is being most effectively or most efficiently, at least in my opinion, that's true. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of wanted to go down the the incentive pendulum route a little bit, but I oh, just right. touching touching on that as well. I think um, yeah, we can we can expand on that further. We'll go down this route first. Yeah, so uh, the incentive pendulum is is kind of an important economic concept within the Thorchain network, right? So as I mentioned earlier, Rune is the asset that secures the the other assets on the network, right? It ensures that the node operators, uh, the validators. They don't collude in some way and walk away with all the money because it would cost more money to get to the place where you can't steal the money than the money that you would actually steal. So you'd spend you know, $30 million buying Rune to walk away with you know $20 million worth of other assets. It makes no financial sense at all. But in order to, to, to ensure that security, there's uh, the network is designed to make sure that we have the correct ratio between the amount that is staked uh, by the liquidity providers, so as people who are staking Bitcoin, staking finance coin, whatever, and versus the people that are running the, the, the nodes of the network and bonding with their rune. And so we want to make sure that there's a that there that one third of the rune is being used for staking assets, and two thirds of the rune is being used to to bond the network itself to create for the validators to bond with. And so what we do for the incentive pendulum thing, thing that you mentioned is that. The amount of money that the um, bonders make or the node operators make uh, versus what the liquidity buyers make has a rate ratio between them, which is a two-thirds, one-third ratio. So if we get into a place where the network has way too much bond in it, the operators put way too much room on the on that side of the of that of the equation, we're overbonded. That means that the bonders or the node operators themselves would churn of a less of a profit. Meanwhile, increasing the profits for liquidity providers, and vice versa. If we don't have enough funds on the bonder side to secure the assets of the network, we incentivize more people to bond and more people to become node operators and say, "Hey, we're going to increase the the profits, increase the ROI on that side, and decrease the profits on the liquidity provider side." So, as a liquidity provider, you might say, "Oh, hey, I'm making less money. Now. I actually could make more money if I actually." unstake my assets from the liquidity provider side and and create a node and bond on the node operator side and that kind of economic pressure to make sure that the that the ratio between those two kind of uh, providers of of uh, of assets uh, is at the optimal place of two thirds one third hey guys i wanted to tell you about our new sponsor crypto.com crypto.com's exchange is a rapidly growing trading venue with a strong retail flow 
Top institutions can receive a credit line and highly competitive maker-taker fees. Their platform is robust, secure, and compliant. You can get started trading today on the Crypto.com exchange. And to get in touch with their institutional sales team, visit bit.ly slash crypto Delphi now or click the link in the show notes. Now back to our show. Got it. Awesome. And just, uh, I definitely want to get to the distribution in terms of like fees and issuance, but even to kind of preface that a bit, I think uh, where ThorChain excels is, so if you think about the current environment and and what we're seeing with uh, fruit coins and, and kind of um, everything else under the sun, you have uh, liquidity mercenaries basically uh, who you know run from project to project searching for the uh, the best yield and then uh, there's some element of game theory where they try and and figure out you know where do I start to exit and or you know which tokens might actually have long term value and 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 so then it revolves around how do these tokens have long term value and it's right. a, it's a difficult question to kind of answer with a lot of these projects because some of that value is predicated on the liquidity, but um, the the liquidity bootstrapping aspect is uh, it, it's only sustainable through those initial high rewards, and then afterwards you're, right. you're kind of competing with the the next fork that can offer higher rewards in that short moment, and so you're you're just kind of kind of going to switch. And so right. the the difficult aspect of a lot of these projects is you can attract liquidity and volume for a certain amount of time, but then you have this this uh, issue of of long term value, and I think so. W- with a lot of early projects that you've seen you know, that have had success, like the you know the SNX and and, and Wi-Fi as well, is um, when when a lot of users are able to get in early, you're able to kind of build this tribalism within the community where they might not always operate in in such a, a mercenary type fashion. And so part of it is is understanding that the token can accrue value in the long run and and part of it is is just the fact that they've already made so much money and, and they have some kind of emotional attachment to the project. And so right. Um, right. kind of uh, bringing it back to, to where I was going was basically that I think ThorChain's integration with the token where realistically the, the token, the project can't attract liquidity without the token physically having value. And so right. you, you don't have this issue where you have token holders that are entitled uh, a certain fee that has to be you know, taken out of the project. And so then you're potentially battling between, okay, so we have to assign a certain amount to LPs and a certain amount has to go to reward the token holders for holding the token. And, and so it, it ends up being uh, a bit of an inefficient and and potentially like reflexive situation where once the next seal farm shows up, volume dries out and then there's just less incentive to hold. And, and so I think with, with ThorChain's integration of the token directly into there, you have to... You don't have to necessarily spend as much on long-term incentives because the yield will will kind of keep enough liquidity sticky there. Where now there's just sizable capital appreciation through the token. Where you know because in the end, its total return is is capital appreciation and yield. And so if you can right. f- force in capital appreciation, then you don't necessarily have to kind of subsidize as much on the yield front. And so uh, I was kind of wanted to kind of go into what the how the system is designed in terms of uh, yield incentives, you know, as you launch with ChaosNet and and um, and and Mainnet as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, watching this whole yield farming thing happening on has been really fascinating to see. And to be honest, vast majority of it is kind of nonsense to me. You know, they're just most of it is just kind of flash of the pan concept, right? We're just it's new and big for this week and probably not next, right? Uh, the difference with ThorChain, I think, is that 
um, one to, to kind of to what you were just saying a moment ago, uh, the token rune actually has value and purpose outside of just you know make making money right uh you need to hold the token to be able to swap between pools uh you need to hold the token to be able to become an operator of the network a node operator of the network it actually has purpose it secures the network itself its sole purpose is not just to you know give you money right in a sense because that if that's the case then you know that can go away rather quickly right which that means it wouldn't that doesn't necessarily have any long-term purpose or or, or reliability in any sense uh, Thorchain is different, right? The yields that people get from staking on Thorchain, whether it be Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any other token, is based upon not only block rewards that is secreted by the network into the pools or to the validators themselves, but also from the the actual job that it has of actually producing income from from swaps that people have, right? So, it it actually will have consistent income over a long period of time. Rather than just be something that's really, you know, high income for the next two weeks and then, you know, dies off after that, right? A lot of like big firms like like Delphi, for example, would probably would like to, you know, have some yield in, on on their uh, on your assets, right? But you're probably not going to do that, you know, it's some sort of flash in the pan yield system where you have no idea what's going to happen in a week or two, and it's actually highly risky for many reasons, right? But if you have an option. Like Thorchain, for example, where you can have uh, you know multiple months, multiple years of of history of showing showing uh, reliability, showing security, showing resiliency, uh, and consistent income, right? Uh, not just you know fluctuations like crazy. You probably would be much more open to staking you know Delphi's uh, you know bankroll into this network, right? Or or maybe another one. Yeah, no, I completely agree, and and just kind of along that same vein in terms of how the tokens integrated and how it accrues value can you kind of touch on uh the i guess the benefits that affords you guys in terms of security and and how you don't necessarily have to um explicitly compensate for security but rather have it be kind of intertwined within the ecosystem and and, and just allowing the the productive value that's developed by thorchain to like compensate security in, in the most cost effective way possible yeah, well, uh, security, um, you know, there's different ways you can talk about security from technical perspective, from economic perspective. I think you're talking more of the economic perspective. But yeah, the security derives from uh, making sure that the number, the amount of rune bond in terms of their dollar value is uh, generally twice what we see on the liquidity provider side of that dollar value, right? Um, as a network grows and becomes more valuable, and, and gets more used, its price will probably naturally increase over time. But it's making, it's making sure that the price of Rune moves with that in terms of the value of the network itself will ensure that it doesn't matter how much of a, of a whale you might be, uh, ensuring that it always costs more money to attack the network than it is to gain from the network, which ensures that from an economic perspective, that you wouldn't even want it to, to attack it because you would always lose money in the transaction doing so. Yeah, I think you know specifically what really helps there is it's it's when you can ingrain, I guess, the value. So the difficulty with a lot of like the economic security is um you have to have the asset that's securing be more valuable than what's being secured. Otherwise there's a there's an economic attack factor. And so with a lot of I think other cross chain solutions, they have to 
set aside fees or some type of compensation to the users that are securing it, and then also provide fees to the users that are providing liquidity and then potentially to the token as well. And so you kind of have this, this um, siloed out compensation that doesn't really become super efficient, whereas uh, here you don't necessarily need to compensate rune holders an explicit side fee, but rather since it's all intertwined, the fees can kind of scale, I think, really efficiently is, is kind of um, you know what, what really appealed to us as well about it. Sure, sure. Yeah, for sure. Chad, just jumping real quick, do you think that the market actually understands the real value that the Rune token plays within your system? Like, I'm just wondering, like, we're talking here about how the Rune token is actually used to secure the network and how it's a one-to-one asset for staked pairs and how there's an incentive pendulum to make sure that that's even. But do you think that the market actually understands that the token plays a crucial role in the network on the security and liquidity side? Or do you think that people might not really understand that yet because the network isn't completely live? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I mean, we have an amazing community who are, are very well educated on ThorChain, you know, but I would also say that similar to Bitcoin, ThorChain has layers to it. And the, the more you get into it, the more you read about it, the more you realize there's just more layers and layers and layers underneath it in terms of its benefit, its value, and all these kind of things. Like, for example, like, uh, what we're doing doing cross chain swaps is just the surface, just the the first thing we want to do. That's the that kind of the, the foundation, if you want to call it that. But having that system kind of built into it and having a, a, a an oracle that's not external to the system, it's actually really valuable. And there's all sorts of amazing things you can do with that once you have that that you can't really do with something like on a project in Ethereum, for example. And that is like we could do, you know. Um, something similar to die if we wanted to, and we could have uh, um, uh, 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 collateralized depositions. And one of the, things, the great values of of Thorchain over something like die is that we actually will always know the, the value of any given asset at any given time within the network, right? Any given time, and it also has a buyer blast resort available at any given time. You don't need to auction off to some you know people out in the community about. And the Ethereum community about to buy this, you know, CDP or what have you. You don't need to do that because we actually have a, a continuous liquidity pool right into the network, right? That's that's a, to me that's a kind of a game changing concept, right? There's lots of things that is possible with this with this network. We've talked internally about the idea of being able to stake assets onto Thorchain without moving your assets into the network, right? You can actually keep your assets in your own wallet in your own house, right? We call that self-sovereign staking, something we've been talking about internally, right? That's a game changer. That's something that you, you can't not re- reasonably do uh, with Ethereum, at least in my opinion, right? There are so many things we can do once we have this, this kind of baseline where we can integrate with any chain in the world, right? There's so many things you can do with that that is really, really important. And, that, and just doing swaps is just like the first kind of lowest hanging fruit in a matter of speaking. There's so much more we can do that we have planned uh, within the core team. Makes a lot of sense, Chad. And just to go into some specifics here, can you kind of describe the dynamics on the impermanent loss situation? I know some people might mess this, but basically what impermanent loss is, is it's basically just the difference between holding tokens in an AMM, like throwing them in the pool, and then just holding them in your wallet. And a lot of people kind of know this from interacting with Uniswap's pools where you right. know, they put assets in, they you know potentially lose assets due to impermanent loss. Can you kind of dive into how that works on ThorChain and, and maybe how that compares to other pools? 
Yeah, sure. Thorchain is, is like very uniquely structured to be better about impermanent loss than, than any other, other thing out there. And the reason why that is, is because for one, you can't front run this network, right? You cannot see that some big swap is coming and then do the inverse swap before it comes in and be able to front run this network. The reason why that is, is because the order in which swaps are done on Thorchain is not a first in first out system. Like you see most of the time with pretty much any other exchange out the centralized exchange out there. Because instead it prioritizes based upon the value of what it derives for the network. So swaps with that give a bigger liquidity fee or generate more revenue for the pool for the pool or for the network as and as a whole will get priority over one that is a small trade that is only giving a little bit of fee into the network. That creates something that's really important here. And that means that the arbitrage bots that are balancing these pools, it's not the first one that comes in that wins and gets, you know, some sort of let's just say twenty percent revenue generated from from what they put into them into the I, I'm making that that number up. That's a random number, but instead, it's actually going to be like a a capitalistic battle, right? Where you have different arbitrage bots all trying to arbitrage same the same pool. The one that's going to win is the one that takes takes the least amount of money out of the network, right? Arbit- and, and permanent loss is derived from taking from arbitrage bots taking more money out of the network. Than the liquidity providers earn from the network, right? That's when you see impermanent loss, which largely comes from when the price change happens between the two assets within a given pool, right? Bitcoin increases by twenty percent, and the other asset, you know, stays the same or goes down, right? That's when you see impermanent loss. But Thorchain is uniquely designed in a way that impermanent loss becomes near zero, mainly for the two reasons. For two reasons, one is the one I was just talking about, where there is a, a capitalistic market where Arbitrage bots are trying to compete for the the ability to arbitrage this pot, this pool. They're all providing the same service. It doesn't matter if bot A or bot B uh, balances the pool. They all get the same result. So it just get it just goes to the person who's willing to take the least amount of profits to do so. And the other reason why you see impermanent loss less on this chain is because we have block rewards that increase the profits for liquidity providers to ensure that liquidity providers don't walk away with less money than they came in. To start with, which is something you do see on Uniswap uh, and SushiSwap and, and, the, and just about every one of these other systems. Makes a lot of sense, Chad. And can you kind of dive into why does Uniswap have set transaction fees? It seems like, you know, getting 30 bips liquidity providers sounds really simple, but it doesn't seem scalable. How do you kind of compare on that? Yeah, I mean, Uniswap... Uh, we at, at the core team, we actually have a lot of respect for Uniswap and for Hayden who who created it. Right, uh, they did a lot of innovation for the first version of Uniswap, which was like really kind of remarkable at the time. Right, but thirty bips, thirty bips uh, system that they have implemented uh, made a lot of sense, and it's a very simplistic implementation uh, that makes sense at that time. But we operate from a different perspective. We use uh, a slippage-based fee, meaning that the more uh, money effectively you're pushing through a pool for a swap, the higher the fee is going to be, right? This ensures that the network provides a, a larger income for the liquidity providers, but at the same time, it actually also provides, provides that the swap fee will be less than you would see on your swap. You can actually go on um, Thorchain.net, which is a, a community-built um, block explorer for Thorchain on the, of ChaosNet. And you can actually see what people are actually paying for uh, swaps on the network. 
And you can actually see people are paying more money for some uh, pools versus other pools. And that what dictates that largely is the depth of the pool and what people are willing to pay, right? For uh, one of the larger pools, like the B&B pool, for example, people we're seeing right now, people are paying approximately 30 bips on average, right? But some people are paying 60 bips or 70 bips. Some people are paying 10 bips. It all depends upon how much, how big the trade is or the swap is that you're passing through the pool relative to the depth of the pool, how much of that B&B and ruin asset that is in that pool to begin with. Uh, from the analysis that we've had from um, Gauntlet, which is a uh, to do an audit of our of our model, they're also audited Uniswap, and they're finding and they're telling us that they're finding that on average the fee will be approximately one third that that you see on Uniswap in most cases, and you, the revenue produced for the liquidity providers is significantly higher than you would see on Uniswap by ten or greater x. So, Chad. Let's just think like high level here, like more philosophical, like Uniswap obviously has captured the Ethereum community because, you know, it's really easy to use. You exchange tokens. Is Thorchain like overall, like is the whole premise based on the idea that we will have multiple chains with their own tokens and then their sub tokens like RC20s and other chains. And all of these have to be obviously transferred and exchanged. Like if we have a world that where only Ethereum wins and Uniswap continues to win, is there still room for Thorchain? I'm just kind of wondering how you kind of view the world going forward there. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly don't think that Ethereum will be like the sole winner, right? Like, I, I, I can't imagine how many people in this industry say Bitcoin's going to die. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of many, many people who's running around saying, Bitcoin's going to zero and Ethereum's going to go to a million dollars a coin, right? Uh, it's just not a common idea. And the reality is, from my perspective, right, is that we're going to have, you know, a few chains win, right? Six, seven, eight, something of this nature. I think there's value in each individual chain and what they provide, and they're not really com- com- uh, in competition with each other, right? You can argue that Bitcoin is the, you know, store of value coin, right? And you can argue that Ethereum is the, a distributed computer, you know, computation uh, coin in a sense, right? And you can argue that Rune uh, in Thorchain is the liquidity token, right? That that offers liquidity between for this entire uh, crypto industry. Each one has its own value and its own purpose, right? But it's it's not going to be like you know, like think about like the internet, right? You have Google, which has its own job and responsibility, and you have Facebook has its own job and responsibility, and they're all different, and they don't really compete with each other, but they're all part of the same internet ecosystem. So I really don't see a world where Ethereum is the sole winner and nobody uses anything else. That doesn't make any sense to me at all, especially when you need, or you're going to be need in the future, layer two uh, options to be able to do higher volume of trading, for example, right? So I think we're going to need a multi-chain highway system, which is exactly what ThorChain is, as a highway system between chain A to chain B, in order to, to be able to move your assets and move your, your value, your wealth, between any chain to any chain without needing to get permission from some centralized entity to allow you to do so. Yeah, appreciate the call. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, we'd love to kind of dive into the, uh, the current status now and basically you know, the, the transition from RuneVault to ChaosNet and, and kind of how ChaosNet's going and what the plans are there. Yeah, sure. So for people who don't know, uh, RuneVault is kind of a, a, a staking thing that we had created 
to for the community to be able to stake their rune before the launch of an actual network, right? So they could stake their rune in Rune Vault, and they can still do it now if they want to, and you can earn uh, an interest uh, over that. Now that we've launched ChaosNet, we're going to start kind of ramping down Rune Vault's rewards and ramping up ChaosNet's uh, rewards. So how's that transition going, Chad? Because it's like RuneFault was awesome, right? Like you incentivized a large community to stake their rune to be involved to get rewards with the whole goal of moving them over kind yep. of to ChaosNet. So I guess how's that transition going so far? Is it like, are people aware of that? Are they all doing it? How's that going? Yeah, I think it's going really well. I mean, I, I think if you looked at RuneVault, I think it was like 86%, 87% of all rune was staked into RuneVault, right? That's a really high staking percentage. If you look at it now, once we now that we've launched ChaosNet and people are starting to move their funds over to, to earn earn revenue on, on that network, I think it's down to 75% or 73%, something like of this nature. We want it to be a slow process. We don't want people to just kind of overnight move all their funds from one place to the next. We want to make sure we roll this out in a slow, calculated, and cautious way. Right now we have, I think on ChaosNet, uh, somewhere between 10 and 11 uh, total value locked on the network. And I think it's about three point or four point something million dollars of staked assets on the network. Over time, we're going to see that the payouts or the ROI of, of ChaosNet is going to increase as we increase the the reserve, which, which pays out the block rewards, as well as more people are starting to use uh, this network and have more swaps um, happening on, on Thorchain itself, which is producing more revenue for the networks. Just last, after a week of launching ChaosNet, we actually surpassed Binance Dex in terms of volume in a 24-hour period. So we already see that the community as a whole is actually quite excited about what it is that we're doing. And as that kind of grows and people are starting to use the network more and more, it's just going to produce more and more revenue for the network. And over time, as as the as the return on the return on investment on RuneVault is kind of ramped down, people are going to want to move their assets over to to Casent to increase their their return on investment. Uh, Chad, was the idea of the quasi guarded launch for BepSwap a plan, or and and I say that because you guys are kind of limiting the amount of assets that could flow into there right now, and you're increasing that cap over time. Is that because of like a previous plan, or is that to kind of find bugs, or is that because of kind of what we're seeing with some of the DeFi projects that are a little reckless? How, how do you view that? Yeah, I mean, ChaosNet uh, was specifically designed in the sense to to run a real network with real money, real assets, but not do it in a way that put a lot of money at risk in the beginning, right? We want, there's some things when you're building a network like this, you just can't test for, right? You can make assumptions about economic uh, incentives. You can make assumptions that you know, bugs don't exist or whatever you want to do, but you really, really, really don't actually know until you actually put test it to in the real world scenario, right? And so we want to make sure that we that chaos is built in a way that that we as the team, core team, have administrative rights over the network to ensure its safety of the assets themselves. So if something goes wrong, we you know we found a bug uh, last week, for example, that allowed. Uh, um, uh, validators to be able to, to siphon rune out of the network, uh, and we found that bug. We were able to halt the ability to, to, to siphon that those funds. We were able to fix the issue, and then carry on, and all the funds were returned uh, to the to the network as well. So we want to make sure we're very calculated and cautious about this stuff because we don't want to have a situation where a network, and we've seen this recently, launches and then Golden gets six hundred million dollars in it, and then a bug is discovered, and everybody's you know the network goes to basically zero. That's irresponsible. You're not thinking clearly about 
you know, protecting people's assets that they're putting into this network. We take this very seriously. I certainly don't want my money taken out of this network, and I don't think anybody else does. So we want to make sure that we do this in a slow and calculated way to ensure that if any security issues are found or any bugs are discovered, that we have the ability to protect the funds, fix the bug, whatever that might be, and then carry on. I think eventually we're going to want... Yeah. Chad, I love that you guys uh, are doing the kind of guarded launch so I could sleep at night. It's not 500 million in a project and then you wake up to a blog post, you know, no fingers pointed here, but it makes it easier. <laughs> I mean, I, I would feel completely terrible if that was the case. So, so <laughs> just to be just to be vain and protect myself from my own anxiety, <laughs> I will I will do everything I possibly humanly can to make sure that every Satoshi is protected on this network because I would feel like a horrible person if money was siphoned out of this network for sure. <laughs> no, glad we, yeah, we need that kind of dedication. Absolutely. And, and so I guess on the broader side, um, you know, we've seen DeFi really pick up uh, this year and um, centralized exchanges are definitely starting to notice and, and you see some of them, become a bit more proactive in terms of how they interact with DeFi um, to, you know, ingrain themselves a bit more and, and trying to uh, figure out ways to, you know, bring value to DeFi, but also bring some stickiness to exchanges. So I was wondering um, kind of if, if you can shed some light on, you know, the interactions you guys have had with, with any, any uh, centralized exchanges or kind of what the game plan is in terms of whether it's like pure cooperation or, or it's more so just trying to kind of, uh, bring their liquidity to you guys and yeah, whatever you think uh, makes sense there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I personally don't see us uh, or Thor, rather ThorChain in, in general to replace ex- centralized exchanges entirely, right? Uh, centralized exchanges like a Binance or a Coinbase does a lot of different things, right? We're pro- at this moment we're predominantly focused on just spot trading, for example, right? Um, we have had conversations with very large exchanges. I don't want to get into like naming names. Uh, Obviously, Binance is one of them because they listed us as a, as a asset on their network. But we've talked to a lot of exchanges about how they can integrate their network into ours, right? And actually use our network as a backend to their network, right? They, a lot of these networks have to hold on on hand, you know, tons of, of capital, right? Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of capital on hand. Theoretically speaking, because you have instant access to whatever coin you need at any given moment, because there's always a counterparty there, uh, you don't need to do that. And I think some exchanges, central exchanges, are really interested in that. And we've had some conversations with ones that are kind of gun ho in a sense in this regard. I do think that that having a way to have a decentralized network to be able to exchange coins across network has value not just to the community as a whole, but just also value to centralized exchanges as well. Chad, just jumping real quick, and that makes a lot of sense. Can you kind of dive into how hard it is or the hurdles you guys overcame by being a pseudo-anonymous team trying to launch a new project? Because a lot of projects in the space either have a figurehead that's well-known or they have VC backers from the start or the get-go that can really help. And there's no issue if VC is invested after, but it seems hard starting from literally ground zero. But I guess the benefit is that if this thing takes off, that you guys could eventually give up control to the community in a great way. Oh, for sure. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I personally laugh at the idea of, of having some sort of figurehead. Uh, it, it, to me, it logically just makes no sense other than for purposes of Bane, right? But like, 
we don't want to have any Jesus-like figures associated with this project, right? We want the project to stand on its own two feet, right? Not because we have some big investor. I mean, we have huge investors, very well-known people and firms that have invested in Rune. We just don't. We just don't disclose it, right? Because it's not really important, you know, to, to disclose that information. It doesn't matter, really. We want the value of Thorchain to be derived from the chain itself, the value that it actually, the value proposition that it actually has. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter who the t- team is. It doesn't matter at all. I don't want people to associate Thorchain with me personally or any other members of our team, right? I don't want, you know, whether you like me or hate me as a person to influence how you feel about the chain itself or the value proposition of the chain itself. It's completely ridiculous. Satoshi kind of modeled this perfectly well for the entire world from day one, right? Which was a smart move. Uh, I think for us, I don't mind people know that I'm involved with this project and and I help design build it, but I, I just don't want people to uh, have me be the figurehead of the system. I want people to focus on the chain itself, its value proposition, and its and what it can provide for the community, not you know me as an individual person. I think even the team itself, we uh, we actually have plans to disband the core team in approximately two years, right? We don't want us to be controlling of it. We don't want us to be the moderators of it. We want the community as a whole to decide upon how this network should move into the future, just as Satoshi did for Bitcoin, which was completely novel and brilliant to do. So eventually, at some point, once this network gets to a a certain level of maturity, the team will probably disband. And all the effort uh, to maintain this chain will go across the community as a whole, which is already doing extremely well. We have so many great uh, projects that are being built around Thorchain, a few different block explorers, a couple of dashboards. Delphi has actually got a really great uh, dashboard they've put together. People are building separate UIs to the BAPSwap UI that we've designed. We're building our own AsgardX wallet, which is going to be a way to, to swap funds between different networks within your own wallet. But it's also just a reference implementation. Any chain in the world, or I'm sorry, any wallet in the world can integrate that same thing, right? So we don't want us to be the builders of everything. We don't want us to be involved with everything that's being built within this ecosystem. And eventually, we want us all to, to step back, let the community step forward and take care of this network and move in the best interest of the network itself, decided by the community, not decided by me personally or anybody else on the team that I'm involved with. Yeah, Chad, that's really admirable. I mean, not having the ego and building something that is literally designed from the get-go to be a community and a public good is is not only admirable, but it's definitely the right decision. It's definitely not easy to, because I'm sure you want to you know, tweet stuff out or take credit here or there, but uh, it definitely goes a long way and it's, uh, it's important. And Chad, we really appreciate coming on, Jan, for co-hosting. And um, Chad, just tell people where they could uh, learn more about Rune and, and um, all the links you mentioned and yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, so I have a Twitter account that I'm not really active on, but I'm there. Uh, it's at cbarraford, C-B-A-R-R-A-F-O-R-D. If you want to follow me, I guess you can. Uh, but I recommend actually following uh, Thorchain itself. So Thorchain underscore org is the Twitter account. We have a great um, uh, Medium blog, which got really great information on there. We're also giving room distribution reports. We're giving budget reports. People can see exactly how much money than the project the team actually has at any given moment. So follow us on the blog. We have thorchain.org if you want to go to the website and read more about us there. And we have a Telegram channel, which is you guys can join in and, and ask questions there if you have them. That's awesome, Chad. Really appreciate your time. And I'll link to all those things in the show notes and also link to 
our original report on Thorchain in the show notes. And then uh, this podcast will go to our members first and then public. And uh, really appreciate your time, Chad. And uh, thrilled you could join us. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks a lot, Chad. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.